Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today's podcast has two parts, so make sure you stay tuned for both. Thanks for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, welcome back to the Trifecta podcast. My name is Maddie and today I'm going to be sharing parts of a short story that I wrote about two years ago. It's about the effect that chronic illness has had on my relationship with my mom throughout the years. It's called Her Eyes, Her Hair. Let's start at the beginning. You said that when you found out you were pregnant with me, no one could take away your joy. You said March 25th, a cold, rainy, dark time to go to the hospital. 11.51 a.m., she came out with a bang. My world will never be the same. No one can take away my joy, you kept saying. 26. I looked into the mirror by the dresser. I saw your eyes, your nose, your hair. Wrinkles that you said I'd get without sunscreen. People were always remarking on the resemblance. You would say, don't tell her she looks like me, she hates that. You would say, she'll love me one day, I used to dislike my mom too. But now I look in the mirror and I see your eyes, your hair, and I'm glad I look more like you than dad. My birthdays have no birthday cake, my cheers have no champagne. Thanksgiving is my least favorite holiday, and yesterday you caught me struggling to walk up the stairs to my bedroom. I had to pause several times since I felt so lightheaded. Zach said you'd been crying in the kitchen because of that. I forget how much she struggles, you told him. I wish there was more I could do to help. I hate that. It hurts you that I'm not getting better. I want to get better for you almost as much as for myself, but chronic illness is just that chronic. I imagine Nora or Jude feeling chronic pain like I do. I picture their birthdays without cakes. They have to be healthy. I think they have to be healthy. 24. Surprise! April 12th, 2018. Two pregnancy tests were positive, and I don't mean weak positives, clear positives. The second was even darker than the first. I'm in shock and my thoughts are going everywhere, 20 and a, a 50 and a 25. Is this for real? Is this a joke? I called you first. You said all the right things. I love you. You're going to be okay. The baby is going to be okay no matter what. I didn't think I deserved you for saying that. I felt terrified. 23. I'm not sick. I'm not sick, but I've traveled to the Mayo Clinic because I've been on the wait list for six months and my parents want me to go. It's an opportunity you can't pass up, they said. And even though I'm 23 and my parents can't technically make me do anything, it's summertime and I know that classes at UNC Chapel Hill start back up in two weeks, so if I'm going to go, it's got to be now. But I'm not sick. Even as I board the plane with you, I tell myself, you're not sick. Even as I check my backpack for my EpiPens and have diarrhea on the plane and almost pass out because my POTS syndrome doesn't like the rapid change in air pressure and the pain in my back gets worse, despite the constant nausea, throwing up, and chronic exhaustion. And even though later at the hotel, I can only eat baked chicken and zucchini because that's all my body can digest these days without having an allergic reaction, I still insist that I'm not sick because no one knows what's wrong with me. And even if I am sick, 
Whatever I have must be invisible because I don't look sick. I follow you down streets of busy Rochester, Minnesota. The Mayo Clinic skyscrapers all connect above and below ground. Inside, the Mayo Clinic impresses us with its enormity, its clean glass windows, and the dozens of smiling volunteers in green vests, all hungry to answer any question you might have. My first appointment is in the Gonda building, and a volunteer is more than happy to point us in the right direction. The Gonda building is connected to the Mayo building. We turn right. The ceilings must be 60 feet high. On every wall hangs modern, modern artwork. It smells like Epcot. The tile floors are shiny and spotless. Wheelchairs are everywhere. The elevators look like small offices, and the Gonda building has 21 floors. There is no trash anywhere. People are kind because they know they're out of time, but busy too because they're out of time. Oh my gosh, I have so many doctor's appointments and a hundred labs and so little time. Whenever other people are in the elevator, you always start a conversation. I despise this because all the other people are always sicker than me. They're in wheelchairs or bald or wheeling oxygen tanks around. It's bad. Everyone's dying. Everyone is desperate. Some are even kids. Some look dead already. As I soon find out, the Mayo Clinic is the place where sick people go when they've got no place left. Although that was technically true for me too, I felt very out of place the whole time. Like I stole someone else's spot. Like I didn't deserve to be there. I remember sitting in the first appointment with what the Mayo Clinic calls your primary physician. I can't remember her name, but she was heavily pregnant, and I could tell that she was distracted by hunger or heartburn because she kept trying to adjust her huge belly, which would not move. I didn't see that doctor again until the very end of my stay. I expected the doctors to interact and work together to solve me, their challenge problem. But it wasn't like that. Most of the week was spent waiting for appointments, for test results, for answers that would not come in the ways I expected them to. The Mayo Clinic is piecemeal, just like my other doctors. We wanted a transdisciplinary approach. We expected a transdisciplinary approach. I wanted my doctors working together and communicating all the time, but I did not find that at Mayo. Instead, my fibromyalgia doctor said that I have fibromyalgia, and my cardiologist confirmed my POTS diagnosis along with the fact that exercise definitely makes your POTS worse. Allergy was useless, but I already knew that I had a mast cell activation syndrome. Gynecology thought I probably had endometriosis. Psychologists confirmed that I've got depression, anxiety, and OCD around sleep. I remember sitting in a small office with an old man who did not look into my eyes, and who asked me questions about childhood trauma. I said something like, I feel like a lost cause. And I remember the doctor responding, we don't consider anyone with major depression to be a lost cause until they've tried electroshock therapy, lithium, and a six-week-long hospital stay. Yeah, right, I thought, mouth open, refusing to believe that the head of psychiatry at the Mayo Clinic was suggesting that I try electroshock therapy and lithium. 
a drug that I knew was used to treat bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, two things that I definitely did not have. Each department of the Mayo Clinic looked different, smelled different, and sounded different. It reminded me of Disney World, how every ride and restaurant showed off its distinct style. Allergy was like a rainbow, dressed up in neon pinks and smiling animals in order to cater to its predominantly young client base. Fibromyalgia was light pink and purples with female staff who could make the 99% of its female client base feel welcome and understood. I'm not sick, I thought, traveling from allergy to cardiology. At the hotel late each night, I ate plain chicken and blueberries. I took 30 medicines before bedtime and four before my meal. Yet my stomach still twisted and I winced for the rest of the night in pain. You were there the whole time advocating for me. 22. I can't keep weight on. People say, you look great, but I'm thin because I'm sick. I want it tattooed on my forehead so people stop looking at me like I'm an eating disorder. I'm thin because I'm sick. I want to shout with the women who feel jealous. Stop looking at me like I'm losing weight on purpose. Don't envy me. You say, who cares what other people think? And I know that you're right. So why does it bother me? My doctors are talking about tube feeds or TPN. A hospital stay. My weight is dwindling and I can't stop it. You worry like crazy and you do research like always. I don't understand why you care so much about me, but I'm only 22 and I know nothing of her mother's love. 21. It was the fanciest restaurant I'd ever been to. I ordered a glass of red wine in public for the very first time and we toasted to my birthday. 21. You wanted to buy me my first official drink. I didn't understand then why it was so important to you, but now I cherish the first of Nora and Jude their first steps, first word, first time saying bye-bye. Now I understand. 20. Journal entry. I feel completely alone. I feel extremely guilty too because I haven't treated my mom well. Yet she loves me anyway. I simply don't know how to show her that I love her. I don't know how. I love her. I do, probably more than anyone, but something gets in the way. If for some reason you were hearing this, Mom, I love you. I always have, and I always will. I just struggle with showing you. 18. I was jogging outside the summer I was 18, and all of a sudden the symptoms began. I ran home as fast as I could. I wasn't sure if I'd make it. Everything itched. I scratched my arms and legs as I sprinted the half-mile home. By the time I ran down the hill through the woods to our house, my face and body was covered in hives, and my tongue was on fire, too. You gave me some Benadryl and drove me to the hospital. After that, no more cardio. They said it's not cancer or a tumor, nothing that would require chemo or radiation. I asked, what is it then? And for the past 10 years, all I've been able to hear from doctors is their best, most honest answer. I don't know. 17. You have 100 tactics for trying to make me love you. New suede boots, the cool kind. 
homemade gluten and dairy-free banana bread still warm, hugs and kisses and a million compliments or paragraphs of how much you care. Do you know why I'm so nice to you? You asked me at the beach. Because I love you, you said. That's why. Mom, I love you too. 16. Remember my sweet 16 when they took out my feeding tube? It was the same day that you gave me a diamond ring. I hate birthdays. Did you know that? In treatment, when there was no celebration, I felt relieved. Getting that goofy tube pulled out of pulled out of my nose was a gift in itself, although my face did feel naked afterward. I didn't realize how used to it I was. Now I feel relieved by the fact that I don't have anything to remember my sweet 16 by, not the feeding tube or the diamond ring. 15. You sent me to hell, I told you during our first phone call and treatment. You weren't allowed any phone time. No one was allowed any phone time until you'd been at the treatment for three weeks. But nurses say you've been doing great, my mom said. I scoffed. Are you kidding? The other girls here hate me. I've never felt so depressed. I'm going crazy. I am not okay. But the nurses say they're lying to you, mom. You inhaled and exhaled so loud I could hear it. You said, then why is your therapist pleased with your progress? He said that. I made a mental note to confront him. It's a lie. He hasn't even been here all week. I haven't had anyone to talk to. I miss my brothers. Will they look different after three months? Will I? I'm fucking miserable, I said. Madison, you said. Just because you're angry doesn't mean you can cuss like that. And I hung up the phone. I'm sorry I took it out on you. 13. The summer I was 13, you read my journal and discovered everything. Thousands of calories added and subtracted in three different food diaries. Lists of foods, lists of exercise, lists of things I hated about myself. By then, I had developed compulsions and obsessions, eat this, not that, in a rage I could not control. I didn't really know what was happening to me. After reading my journals, you came to me crying, asking, how did this happen, and what are you, why are you doing this, and where did my daughter go? That night, I burned all my food diaries in a dramatic bonfire that was meant to scare you into respecting my privacy. You brought me to therapy. You sent me back there before, back when I was nine. I went back to the same lady who used to let me play board games and make a worry wall. The worry wall was divided into three sections, just like a stoplight, green, yellow, and red. I would use sticky notes to pin my worries to the wall. Red were worries, reds were worries that nagged me throughout the day or kept me awake at night. Yellows were worries that nagged me throughout the day but, but didn't keep me awake at night. Greens were hardly worries at all, more like concerns. Sometimes my reds would go away and I'd train that changed them to greens. More often they went from red to yellow, from red to yellow and back again. But at 14, sessions with Kimberly no longer involved sorry or worry wall. By then they, became, they began with weigh-ins and usually ended with you and Kimberly upset with me for not trying. I'm sorry for not trying earlier. 12. Celiac disease. 
I suspect you have celiac disease, the doctor said. I was 13. We went to Trader Joe's, you and me, looking for rice pretzels and corn pasta. I feel better on a gluten-free diet, less stomach aches anyway, so I keep it up. I decide to care more about food and exercise, but I've never known how to care just a little. I either care not at all or way too much. And that's how my eating problems began. 11. Mom, I know I was a bitch back then with the anorexia. Remember how I'd sneak Ollie my food before dinner time? I guess that's why he still sits by me at meals, even though I don't feed him like that anymore. It made me sneaky. That's something I'm sure you know. But there is one thing I never told you. You probably don't remember this. I was outside by the pool one summer I was 11. I got to the table first and let Ollie eat spaghetti right from my plate. But he kept puking, which ruined my plan. I don't think dogs are good at digesting noodles or marinara sauce. I said I was done eating. No way was I going to finish my dog's vomited up noodles. And you ate their regurgitated spaghetti. I let you. I'm really sorry about that. Ten. You tell me that when I was one, I used to hold a crayon and pretend to write stories without any letters. I'd sit by my bookshelf and pretend to read with books upside down. I loved the feeling of ink on paper and a writing tool in my hand. When I was eight, your marriage was bad. And when I say bad, I mean abusive. So I'd go out to our dock on Lake Norman and sit up with my hairy legs dangling and write. I'd write about my life. I'd write poems and short stories. Even though I had four younger brothers to look after, I'd write because it was the next best thing to running away. One day I wrote a note to dad, please hug mom and say you're sorry. He scoffed, I felt embarrassed. I hugged you for him. Nine, my first memories include trips to maternity wards that smelled like cotton and soy formula. I went to see my four younger brothers when they were born. I'd watch you in bed, unable to move and cradling a tiny wrinkled package in your arms. You'd kiss the baby's head and toes, keep them safe. No one would love the babies as much as you. I didn't like the rules and the beeping sounds in the hospital. My little brothers never seemed quite human at first. It wasn't my job to fawn over the new baby anyway. I would help with the other boys. I learned to associate the smell of maternity wards with confusion. At 24, I was back in a maternity ward, but this time it was me in bed, unable to move. The smell of the place was the same, cotton and soy formula. You were there. I was about to meet my firstborn, my daughter. I'd kiss her head and toes. I'd cradle her in my arms. I'd keep her safe, and no one would love her more than me. Nora's birth. The ceiling kept spinning. Faces, unfamiliar, stood around me. I wore a mask, and even the mask kept spinning, or else it felt like it. I put all my energy in pushing her out, watching the mirror between my legs for help. 
I could see her brown hair descending, popping out of me, and then being sucked back up again and again. My heart rate was dropping. Her heart rate was dropping. I remember your voice. You can do this. You can. Maddie, push. Push. You were there the whole time. Just as I had predicted a week earlier, my daughter's hands were both blocking her head from coming out. She was stuck, and both of our heart rates continued to drop. We need to get this baby out now, said the doctor. Do you want us to use forceps or the vacuum? I don't know, I said. You're the doctor. That's when a medical student used wide metal forceps to open my vaginal canal and pull her out. I'd have second degree tearing because of that, but it worked. She came out with a bang. My world would never be the same. Nora Rose was born, and after reviving her, the nurses draped her little body onto my chest. She was purple and motionless like a little rag doll. In the video, I'm saying, Mom, look at her. You were tearing up. She's beautiful. Why isn't she crying? I asked again and again. Why isn't she crying? She will, they said, but she didn't. I stroked her feathery back and smelled her sweet brown hair. No one could take away my joy, I said. I love her more than you will ever know. You're turning into your mom, Zach says when I ask, when I ask him to take family pictures. He hates taking family pictures, just like I always hated taking family pictures. That is, until my daughters were born. Please, I ask him. They're growing up so fast. Fine, Zach says. I'm already wearing my nice shorts anyway. A few days later, I developed the pictures. I love to see us together, my little family. I hang some of the photos up and develop some for the girls' baby books. Wow, I think. I really am turning into my mom. I consider that for a moment. But maybe that's actually a good thing. End. If you're still listening, thank you so much for making it through my story with me. I really appreciate all of you for listening. And thank you for being willing to hear my story. Hear a little bit about how my illnesses have affected my relationship with my mom. We appreciate all of our listeners so much. And I would love to hear any feedback you have to offer. We have an account on Instagram called The Trifecta 2021, where you can stay up to date with our current podcasts and our upcoming podcasts. We post podcasts bi-weekly. Thank you so much for being here. We hope that you tune in again soon. Thank you. This is my story of my experience with chronic illness and mental health issues. It was just a normal day in 2016. We had just gotten back from Camp Invention. Mom was super thirsty and the only drink she had was a Dr. Pepper. She took a sip and immediately felt a sharp pain in her lower right abdomen. Of course, we thought it was her appendix, so immediately they rushed her to the emergency room. It was flu season, so I wasn't allowed in the hospital. I wasn't there, so I don't remember much, but I knew that it wasn't her appendix. They ran lots of tests, and her appendix came back negative, so I just thought it was another kidney stone. We were pretty used to those. Although most of the tests came back negative, there was one that did not which was her creatin. It was a three. 
which wasn't good at all. The hospital she was at didn't have the proper tools, etc. to keep her safe, so they immediately rushed her to another hospital that was about 40 minutes away. So my parents called me and told me what was going on. Nine-year-old me was wanting to make the ambulance go faster. I sat at the edge of my driveway, crying with my knees bent and my head lying on my legs. I didn't know what was going on. I finally received the call that they had arrived at the new hospital. I went to my grandma's house so that I was not alone. I still just thought it was a kidney stone, and at the time, so did they. Usually, I wasn't a car rider at my elementary school. She was a third grade teacher at the same school. I'd usually just go to mom's classroom and she would take us home when she was ready to leave. But this time with her being in the hospital, I had to be a car rider. I hadn't heard from anyone all day regarding my mom, so I was hoping that meant that instead of just seeing my dad in the car, I would also be able to see my mom in the passenger seat. But as the car got closer, I saw that it was my father. However, I still had hope. I got in the car with a big smile on my face. Mom's at home, right? No, honey, mommy is still in the hospital. The next day, I still had heard nothing, but I was still hopeful. I got in the car and this time there was good news. My dad looked me in the eyes and said, Mom gets to come home tomorrow. We went to the store and got some hot pink roses and a card that wrote, Get well soon. I saw my car pull up and I only saw my dad. But as I got closer, I saw her. I ran as fast as I could with my pink backpack bouncing up and down on my back. You could hear my pencil pouch hitting my textbooks. I was so happy. She had several appointments following her hospital stay. Her first appointment was with her primary care doctor. They were just going to go over some blood work. Mom was at work and we were awaiting the results from the blood work. The doctor's office called the school and told her the results. We were in the backyard with dad playing with the dogs and me on the old yellow swing set. We were awaiting the call from her because she was almost done with school. I had the phone in my hand and the phone rang. What did they say? Well, sweetie, they think I have a sick liver. What does that mean? We aren't sure yet, but I will be okay. Can you put that on? I handed my dad the phone. I was confused. I wasn't sure what it meant. Maybe she had a cold? I didn't know. When she got home, she called me and my brother into her room. She took a deep breath. Mommy has a something called cirrhosis. What does that mean? It's a liver disease. Well, you can take medicine to make it go away, right? Unfortunately, it isn't that easy. What do they have to do for it, I said. One day, they will take my yucky liver out and give me someone else's liver who's healthy. Alive, I thought. 
I'd never heard of that before. I was only nine, so I didn't understand. No, sweetie. You see, some people choose when they die if they want to donate their organs to people who need them. Like you? Yes, like me. My attention span was still pretty short at that point, so I still didn't really understand. I noticed my brother crying, and my mom was also. Why are they crying, I thought. I tried very hard to understand, but I was just too young. Mom had a biopsy the following week to confirm the diagnosis, which was where they would go in and take a piece of her liver and send it off for someone to study. It was finally time for her appointment, but it was a Saturday, so I went to my grandma's house because I was only a few minutes away from the hospital. They didn't want me thinking about it. I didn't really know why at the time because I was not scared. I didn't even understand. Over the course of two years, mom's health continuously deteriorated. From constant falls, high ammonia levels, and urgent hospital visits, her doctors decided that it was time to take a break from work. Mom was a third grade teacher for 26 years. She needed to be 30 years old in order to retire. But then she got sick. She loved her students and her students loved her. She started to fall asleep during school. She'd fall asleep while testing students or start to doze off at the whiteboard. But she'd tell her kids she had an allergic reaction and had to take Benadryl. It was important to her that she didn't scare them. In fact, at the time she was diagnosed, I was also in third grade, so I knew what it was like to be their age trying to understand such a complex disease. With all involved, her doctor told her she'd need a two-month break from teaching, which was hard enough as is. But after those two months, her doctor refused to sign her back to work. Her heart was crushed. I felt so bad. When I was 14, mom was still trying to settle into having to let go of teaching. She knew she'd had to go through all of her teaching stuff, but was just too sad to do it. So some of the teachers brought it to my house. Two months later, the boxes still laid on her front porch because it reminded her all too deeply of having to let go of half of her lifetime. She stood on her front porch and said, it's hard. She started crying. I wish I could take all the pain from her, but I can't. I can't make it all better, but I try anyway. She showed me a picture of a beautiful girl with a ponytail holding a soccer ball. This was my Sela. She's beautiful, I replied. I'm just worried, she said. What about my students who had terrible parents? Who's going to help them? Brayden, his parents locked the fridge and pantry so he couldn't get anything. He used to come by my class and I'd give him something to take home. Annabelle, her mom would keep having babies and left all of the kids with her in third grade. She had to mother everyone. I would encourage her. She'd come by my class and we'd talk before the bell rang. Anaya, her stepdad wouldn't treat her equally as his biological kids. She loved art, but he took her crayons. Who will love them as I do? 
who will listen to their cries, who will love them as their own. She eventually had to stop driving. So during that time, depression took a toll on our family. It's okay. Sorry. It's hard for my mom to take her medicine, especially when she's out of it, because she doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't know that she needs medicine because she doesn't know that she's out of it. I don't need meds, she said. She didn't know that she was out of it. Okay, I said, and went downstairs to get her medicine anyway. It's time for your medicine, I told her. It'll help you. Okay, can I please have my water? Of course you can. I pulled back her hair and helped her to sit up. I felt a sense of relief. That was the first time she refused to take her medicine. It's happened many times since then, at least once a week. But it mostly happens to lactulose, this super thick, sweet liquid that clears the toxins out of her body. She hates it, and I hate it for her. Sometimes, the only good solution is to just walk away for 10 minutes and let her relax. Some of you might not know what I meant when I said out of it. Cirrhosis comes with constant levels of high ammonia, which are poisons that can build up in the brain and cause confusion. Although these times can be very scary, they happen so often that we've grown to laugh instead of becoming afraid because life's not going to get any better by sitting around and complaining about what's wrong in life. Although some of her episodes can be hard, some are funny. For example, here are a few of her funny episodes. I went to Alaska, Mom said on the phone. Really? Yeah, there was a huge avalanche. We didn't think we'd get out of time. Oh no! Yeah, but luckily we survived. Good. Is Grandma at the house with you? No, I think she's at the, t- at the store getting Thermagear. I started laughing. Oh. Or another one. It was 3 o'clock in the morning and time for my mom to get some rest. My brother tried to take her phone so that she could get some. I'm going to report you to the people. What people, he asked. The people. They're going to take you and hang you upside down in the woods. My dad said, I think you're having an episode. Let's go and lay down for a bit. I am not out of it. I'm going to report you to the clowns. The clowns? Yeah, there's like 50 of them. They're stuffed in the back of the trunk. Or another one. It was 11.30 at night, and I was checking on Mom to make sure she was okay. She said, get your brother in here. Of course I was scared because I thought something was wrong, so I went to get my brother. My brother walks in the room, and my mom says, did you feed him? Feed who? The donkey. We have a pet donkey. Did you feed him? Yes, I fed him. You cannot argue with them because it hurts their feelings knowing that they're incoherent. So we go along with it. 
Well, make sure you feed it and pet it. He needs love, too. So during all of those episodes, we could choose to become afraid and sad, but instead we choose to laugh. It helps a lot more than sitting around and being afraid all the time. Taking care of my mom consists of making sure all of her medicine is in line. Not too much, not too little. I remember at first, I made a chart with every pill and wrote down the name of it and how many times a day she takes it to ensure that I would not forget. I grab her insulin and make sure she has enough. It was definitely hard at first, but now I've grown to understand most of it. I also deal with chronic illness myself. It sometimes can be hard managing mental health, my own chronic illness, and my mom's chronic illness. I had a physical exam for fourth grade. The doctor said, touch your toes, and began to run a hand down my spine. It looks like you have a case of scoliosis. I was just 10 years old. I thought, I'm going to die. The doctors was talking to my mom. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what that word even meant. Can it be cancer, I thought. I even started planning my own funeral. I imagined my parents crying. Again, I was just a little girl. I didn't know what to think. The nurse took me to this dark room. There were no lights. All I could see was this bed, and it sounded like a big motor. The nurse smiled. She said, this is called an x-ray, and I promise it's not going to hurt you. I hadn't remembered ever having an x-ray before. I closed my eyes as I put my back to the board. The nurse said, everything will be okay. I'm just going to take a little picture of your back. I said, okay, with a scared and quiet voice. A few minutes later, we got the pictures back. The nurse gave me two numbers, 26 and 33. These were the degrees of my curves. The doctors explained to me that scoliosis is not cancer. They said that it is just a spine that has curves to it instead of it being straight. I tried to pronounce it, but I couldn't. They told me I had to go to an orthopedic doctor. I didn't know what that was. Is it a surgeon? Am I going to die? Why do I need surgery? As we left, there was a small mirror to the left. I stopped and looked in the mirror. I saw my tired eyes. I felt ugly. I thought my life was over, but I knew that I had to accept it. So I took a deep breath and said, hello, scoliosis. A few weeks later, I went to my first appointment. They told me I would need a back brace, and the same day I was fitted for it. We first put on the sock, which was this long and tight tank top type thing. We then began to fold over each side of Velcro. I was so excited to finally have my brace. However, 30 minutes in, I began to feel some pain and discomfort. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't sleep how I wanted to. I asked my mom, can I take it off? You have to keep it on. I begged and pleaded to take it off, and every night it just got worse. 
I didn't like it anymore. I realized that living with scoliosis wouldn't be as easy as I had once thought. In the following months, I began to sneak and take the brace off. It hurt me so much, and I was not getting sleep because I couldn't lay how I wanted to. The sound of the Velcro was very loud. I would have to stuff blankets and pillows over it and around it to minimize the sound. I described it as sleeping with another person, a person who was constantly talking to me or hurting me and wouldn't let me to sleep. It was like a monster. It felt like lying on a rock. All I want is a night of sleep without pain, I thought. All I want is to be able to breathe. It got so bad that I would memorize my parents' alarm clock so that I could get up and slip the brace back on before my parents woke up. And then it happened. I fell. It was October of 2019. We went to the urgent care. Of course, walking into the urgent care, I was freaking out because of course I thought my hip was broken. And the doctors made me get another x-ray. I was used to that by now. They took me to back to the dark room. I did everything they said and the pictures were taken. The nurse left the room for a few minutes. My back was still up against the board and the pictures slowly started scanning. My heart sank watching the pictures load. At first, my upper spine looked straight but it became curvier and curvier as the pictures loaded. I knew that that was it. I didn't say anything. I just sat and imagined my life over the next few years. I thought it was all my fault. I recalled my mind going blank for a few minutes. All I could remember is leaving the urgent care in tears, not knowing how the rest of my life would play out. A few days later, I had to go to a new doctor. I didn't want to go. I walked into the new doctor's office. The smells were all still the same. Toilet cleaner and latex gloves. It was cold. I had to get a new x-ray. I hated them because it was a constant reminder of my scoliosis. He said, looking at your x-rays, and before he could finish, I stopped him and said, I know, I need surgery. And the doctor nodded. I didn't say anything. I didn't want to accept it. My mother said, is there not any other option? Miss, I understand your concern, but unfortunately there's nothing left to do. On February 28th of 2020, I had a pre-op appointment. I was fine with going until I found out that they were doing blood work. I'd never had blood drawn. Little did I know that was something I'd have to get used to. They first went over some details for the surgery. You can't eat past 10 o'clock. On the day of surgery, you will have to wash in this special soap to make sure you do not get any infections. The nurse wrapped a bright orange bracelet around my wrist. On the day of surgery, you will have to show the nurse this and you will wear this for two weeks up until the date of your surgery. The bracelet contained my name, a date, a barcode, and a number. On March 13th of 2020, I had my surgery. Something that would forever change me and my whole entire perspective of life.
The lady at the front desk scanned the bright orange bracelet that the pre-op nurse had given me. I remember shaking because I was so scared, putting on the hospital gown, the silver blanket, and the hospital hat. I knew that was it. They were going to cut me open. They wheeled me to the hallway and my family said goodbye. The child care nurse stayed by my side. They wheeled me into the OR, which was cold and quiet. I recall the sound of packages opening. Those are my rods, I thought to myself. They transferred me from the bed to the operating table. The bright light was blinding. And then it was time. They pulled over a mask filled with air and put it over my nose. My surgery was almost 12 hours, and it took almost five for me to fully wake up. I was in the hospital for a week. Constant pain, fatigue, high heart rate, nurses coming in every two hours, having to get up out of bed to use the restroom, not having the correct nurses to get me in and out of bed. I remember there was one nurse who I loved because she could get me out of bed without hurting me. It was safe to say that week was a living hell. One of the things that I would say about the healthcare system, I was so afraid of doctors. I didn't know that I could advocate for myself. I let doctors walk over me for three years, telling me it was just in my head. I thought that I was not allowed to speak up for myself because my birth certificate said I wasn't 18 yet. I was constantly told by doctors that they couldn't fix me and that everything is just in my head. One thing I'd say to anybody going through chronic illness is never be afraid to advocate for yourself. You don't need a specific number to stand up for your rights and your health. Of course, everything comes along with severe depression and anxiety. I remember my first anxiety attack, woken up from a deep sleep at two in the morning with no one there to help me. But of course, I listened to the doctors and I thought that it was just in my head. So I didn't know what ang that anxiety existed. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I couldn't breathe, my face went numb and started to tingle and my chest grew tight and heavy. I thought I was dying because I was always told that anxiety was just in your head. My depression is terrible and some days I feel like giving up, but I don't because I found out that life isn't always as it looks. So far, any, so for anybody dealing with chronic illness or mental health issues, I encourage you to believe that person, not the one who tells you everything is in your head, but the one who tells you that it'll get better because that person isn't lying. And you deserve to stick around long enough to see that. If I was given three chances to change my whole life, I wouldn't change a thing. Because chronic illness has taught me to be grateful for life. And to treat everyone with love because you never know what someone is going through until you've walked through it yourself. I just wanted to thank Maddie again for sharing her story with us. Maddie, you're such a beautiful soul. that story gave me the chills. You were amazing. I know I say that to you all the time, but I truly mean it. And Emily, thank you so, so much for sharing your story with us. You are such an amazing young woman. You're going to change the world. And I'm so honored to have you on our podcast. Keep doing what you do, Emily. You're inspiring people. You inspired me. 
You are just truly a remarkable young woman. And thank you all for listening again. If any of you have any stories you would like to share, we would be more than welcome to feature you on our podcast someday as well. You can reach out to us on Instagram at the trifecta 2021 or you can email email us at the trifecta 2021 at gmail.com. Again, we would love to hear your stories or any comments or questions or we would just love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.